0: Hello, I'm Cathy Rensenbrink, a writer and a former bookseller, and this is The Bookseller Podcast. The Bookseller has been the magazine of the book trade since 1858, reporting on everything from the first publication of The Mill on the Floss to the launch of Harry Potter. We run the annual British Book Awards, which is a bit like BAFTAs for books. In this first podcast, you'll hear all about the books that have been causing a stir during 2018. We're talking to Sarah Perry, the award-winning author of The Essex Serpent, about her latest book, Melmoth.
1: My favourite quote from the moment is by one of the towering literary titans of the 21st century, Dolly Parton. And she said, find out what you're like and do it on purpose.
2: (laughs) Hear what books are causing a buzz. Sally Rooney's Normal People is absolutely running away with it. It's obviously just been named Waterstones Book of the Year. Here, Adam
0: Kay reading his hilarious and important book, This Is Going To Hurt.
3: First, Von Toos Delivery. My registrar, Lily, talks me through it gently, but to do it all myself, congratulations. You did amazingly well there, says Lily. Thank you, I reply, then realise she's actually talking to the mum. And every month we'll be asking
0: the book doctors, two of the UK's best indies, which books they'd choose for eager readers wanting to know what to pick up next. First, let me introduce you to this show's contributors and experts. Tom Tivnan is the bookseller's managing editor and the an author himself, and Kira O'Brien is the bookseller's charts editor, and she looks after the new review service books in the media. Between these two, they know everything about every book that's been sold and reviewed this year.
3: Hello.
2: Hi.
0: Nice to have you with us. Our two book doctors this time are Nick Bottomley from the legendary Mr Bees in Bath, and Mary Moser from the Edinburgh Bookshop. Talking to them is the bookseller's owner, Nigel Roby. Hello. We hope this will become the place to hear about the books we love, what's coming out, what's selling, what's being reviewed, and hopefully we can also introduce you to some books and authors that you won't have heard of before. And then you can rush off to your local bookshop and buy them all. First, let's hear from Tom about the books of 2018, from the big beasts to the outliers. Tom, can we start with huge successes? What are the really big books this year?
4: Well, the biggest thing overall is... Gail Honeyman's Eleanor Oliphant is Completely Fine, which has sold about 800,000 copies in print, probably mm-hmm. about 250,000 more in ebooks. So it's by far the biggest selling book of the year. It's an interesting book in that it's been kind of lumped in what's called the uplift genre, which broadly means, I guess, uh, books that make you feel good. Um, kind <laughs> of a, a contrast, I guess, to the kind of psychological thrillers that yeah. have been coming out and which kind of mostly f- have women in peril the peril for this woman is her difficulties relating with others and it has a nice ending. So I think that has really struck a chord with people. But I guess it's reached this level where everyone has seen it somewhere Mm -hmm. and their friends reading it. And it's won a little few prizes and so they're all picking it up. It's really interesting. It's still selling really well now, about 12 months after it was released.
0: I think it's a really good book. I'm always surprised when people call it Uplit because it's, I mean, it's a book about decent human beings struggling and ending up a little bit better at the end than they were at the beginning. Yeah. But um, it's far from being uncomplex in its issues, isn't yeah. it?
4: Yeah, I think that goes to kind of the media and the publishing industry having difficulty putting round pegs and square holes <laughs> and, and they have to fit it into something. Yeah. Oh, we have this category we call Uplit, so we need to put it in there. That's that. Yeah. But I think it's unique and on its own. In nonfiction, the biggest selling book is Adam Kay's This Is Going to Hurt, (laughs) sorry, (laughs) which is his kind of memoir as a junior doctor in the NHS. It sort of goes along the lines that there's been a mini trend of sort of surgeon and nurse memoirs, but this is a bit funnier. But again, like Eleanor Oliphant, it's been selling really well for the entire year. I think it's been the paperback number one for pretty much eight months in a row, barring Mm -hmm. a couple weeks here and there. And again, I think it's a sort of zeitgeisty thing because we, the NHS obviously is in the news all the time being threatened by mm-hmm. Brexit. And while this kind of points out that absurdities of the nhs from working inside it is quite loving to the nhs mm-hmm. at some level
0: and extremely funny which is right, always yeah. nice isn't it people want to be cheered up as well yeah. as to be engaging with important yeah, material absolutely. i think and some i mean a bit rare you can do both those things at the same time
4: one more just yes, just uh, yes. is tom carriage's uh lose weight for good tom carriage used to be a rather portly fellow a michelin star chef mm-hmm. who enjoyed his food but he's lost weight and he's released two cookery books in a row that are about losing weight this recent one is the most valuable book of the year as we say uh, it's made four million pounds in the year and and again like these other two it's been selling well it was released in January it's mm-hmm. still selling well um which is quite rare this year we've had the three biggest books are the ones that have were published January February and not the ones that have been published in November December, uh, or December. He's
0: also very interesting, I think, on stopping drinking, which is yeah. a big part of his uh, post, yeah. turning 40, yeah. losing all his weight, stopping drinking. So um, I think I, I think we like to see those books do well, don't yeah. we? Um, right, this isn't a sentence I often say. Can we talk about President Trump?
4: <laughs> oh, please, because <laughs> he doesn't get much airtime anyway. In a weird way, he's had a huge, huge influence on... Books this year in in the obvious way because um one of the big books in the early part of the year was michael wolf's um fire and fury Mm -hmm. which was the first real insider account of the trump white house where we got to learn that he watches fox tv all day and while scarfing mcdonald's Mm -hmm. and that's old tons and there's a bob woodward book called fear um which also has another trump white house expose which did really well the james comey book the fbi director which didn't do as well here, but, you know, it was in the news quite mm-hmm. a bit. But also, uh, Michelle Obama's Becoming, I think, is a Trump book, and I said that in inverted commas, because I one of the things that's driving its sales is a sort of, nostalgia for um, having decent people in the White House.
0: Yeah, this is a longing to read a book about yeah. a half-decent human being. I mean, I'm sure she's more than half-decent, yeah, yeah. Obama, but yes, yeah, just a longing to read about uh, decent people trying to do yeah, decent yeah. things, perhaps. Yeah,
4: and there's the fiction. Um, this has been going on since Trump was elected. There's a lot of feminist books that have been um, selling well, and 1984 has been selling mm-hmm. well. I think we wouldn't be having a sequel to The Handmaid's Tale mm-hmm. uh, if it wasn't for President Trump so... Margaret Atwood fans are the (laughs) benefits of having Trump in the White House.
0: That's great. Let's talk about the Man Booker Prize. That often has a big impact on sales. The Man Booker Prize. Has it had a big impact this year?
4: It has. Um, The big story last year was that uh, George Saunders, Lincoln and the Bardo was the worst, and maybe Kira can confirm this, is the worst selling.
2: Yeah, it sold 70,000 copies across all editions. And the lowest selling up from that has sold about 180,000. Not great.
4: So, yeah, so the the narrative in the media, and the media does love to kind of kick the booker, and particularly now <laughs> that they've opened the prize up to Americans, was that, you know, the booker doesn't do anything anymore. Mm-hmm. But this year, Anna Burns' is The Milkman won mm-hmm. a supposedly difficult book, uh, Lincoln and the Bardo was, mm-hmm. but his smashed uh, sales. It has the biggest first week since records began. So. Wow. So, the booker is back, and I think last year's Lincoln and the Bar was a bit of a blip.
0: I mean, prizes are great for authors, I think, in lots of ways, but I do always really love it when the man booker prize. I think they should pick the best book, but I love it when they enrich someone who previously has maybe not had much in the way of um, plaudits, attention, or indeed money. Yeah, yeah so it's, it's great a, to see her life transform. Such a
4: love, lovely story, and that she said that she was using the £50,000 to pay off our debts kind of tells you (laughs) what, what the struggle, the struggle is real for writers and it's really difficult to make money if you're on the sort of literary side.
0: Yeah. Thanks ever so much, Tom. The bookseller recently launched its new reviews email, Books in the Media. Nigel, would you like to start by telling us what Books in the Media is? I must say I've been enjoying it myself.
5: Uh, well, I'm, I'm very glad about that, Cathy. Thank you. Yeah, Books in the Media, we started because there are still quite a lot of books being reviewed or reviews in the papers, but people buy fewer papers. And even when they do or they go online... It's a very tribal thing, so a book could get a fantastic review in the mail or something, but if you're a Guardian reader, you're not going to see it. What we want to do was put them all together in one place, whether that's the national newspapers, Sundays, and put them all together, all the reviews, give them a star rating. We've weighted each magazine or publication to kind of give it a secret source, And then every Monday lunchtime, we send an email out with the ones that have been reviewed over the previous weekend. Uh, yeah, so far I mean I think it's a really useful thing. Bookshops love it because their you know, people can come in, you know, their customers can come in, and they can say, oh, I read a review of a book and I can't remember its name, but I know it was in The Guardian or The Observer. Yeah. And, and When I was I a
0: bookseller, I remember um, I remember one day a woman came in and she was really cross with me about because I hadn't heard of this book and she said, I can't believe you don't know it. It was on Start the Week this morning. And I said, <laughs> oh, I've been here. I wasn't listening to Start the Week this morning. So I think reviews, aggregation services are so useful for booksellers because quite often you're not lying around reading the Sunday papers or listening to Radio 4 non-stop because you're actually doing the hard graft of working in the bookshop so Kira you compile the email don't you so tell us how you set about it and what you look for
2: well it's mainly looking for the books that have been reviewed over the past week but um, reviewers are sort of all united in their praise for because that doesn't always happen and also they're usually quite different to what's happening in the charts the books being reviewed in the papers and the books in the chart can be two very very separate things Oh, that's interesting. Um, Tell us what's
0: happening at the moment, reviews-wise.
2: Well, at the moment, all the papers are full of uh, their Books of the Year uh, roundups, and Sally Rooney's Normal People is absolutely running away with it. It's obviously just been named Waterstones Book of the Year. Consequently, it's had an 800% boost in sales (laughs) uh, week on week, which is nice. Um, But it's also, yeah, all the reviewers absolutely love it. It's being compared favourably to Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah, it's really the biggest book.
0: And are there any um, unexpected nuggets, things that have surprised you, things that are surfacing through the books of the year lists that maybe haven't had that
2: much action yet? Uh, there is a book called A Different Drummer by William Melvin Kelly. Oh, which very is good. Actually, I love that. Yeah. yeah, it's reissued from 1962, um, and it's so far got a straight five-star rating, yeah. so every single review has been a five-star. The Observer has called its rediscovery a gift to literature um it's been reissued from 1962 it's about the civil rights era
0: a farmer just decides one day to leave his farm and leave the state and then all the people of color who live in the state follow him and the story is told from the perspective of the white people left behind that's
4: the really interesting thing about it i think it's it's a black author black and american author telling this whole thing about a diaspora of Mm. black people from the south for obvious reasons, because they don't want to face the racism, they want to get out. Um, but he does it entirely from the white people's eyes, and they—the white people—can't understand it. They yeah. just are just baffled about why.
0: But it, I think it's quite a forgiving and compassionate book of the uh, white yeah, people, absolutely. which is yeah, another reason so. why it's so effective. Yeah. But when I read it, my hair stood on end all the time I was reading it, and is standing yeah. on end now. My scalp is sort of prickling. Yeah. It's so—it's it's a visceral experience to read the book, and it's just so
4: good. Yeah it's hard to fathom that it's been it's disappeared for this past
5: you know 50 odd years so do you think that that is potentially another stoner um yeah stoner was that book that was kind of rediscovered i I think or the the history books say by waterstones i don't know if that is right but um i mean it did amazingly second time around Yeah, Yeah.
4: yeah and i think that's exactly the sort of thing that the publisher was aiming for, is yeah. to try to make it the next donor. Yeah.
0: But I think there's a lovely story to the rediscovery, isn't it? Didn't someone find it in a charity shop or a second-hand bookshop and yeah. read it, and that's how it came to be republished. I've, that, I've, it's just astonishing how fresh it is, and you feel it's just mm, been... Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, a lot of the reviews say it's amazing that it's still so relevant, you know, 50 years after in 2018. And yeah. it shouldn't be, but it is. Um, very true, and of course, rather sad.
0: Anyway, yeah. <laughs> But everybody should read a different drama. And that, that is, I think, one of the constellations for where the fact that life is awful, is that people then write brilliant books about the fact that life is awful, and a different drama is one of those books. So we recommend that to all our listeners. Kira, tell us about the Heatseeker chart. That's also you, isn't it? And that throws yes. up interesting things.
2: Yeah, so the Heat Seeker chart is the best-selling fiction books by authors who have never charted in the top 50. So the top 50 is usually... The books there are sort of pushed there through marketing, whereas the Heat Seeker chart is a bit more like the plucky upstarts who are there because they won an like award that. or... Uh, For a retailer pick, Mm -hmm. Uh, the current um, 2018 Heatseeker bestseller is actually a 2017 book that was a Waterstones book of the month in winter 2017, Uh, Amor Tell's uh, A Gentleman in Moscow. And it's actually continued to sell throughout 2018. It actually had its highest week of sales, the week um, the Salisbury spy poisoning news broke. And it seems to be um, heading a sort of mini spy resurgence in fiction books. There's also Mick Heron's Jackson Land series is really mm-hmm. high in the uh, Heat Seekers chart and also Jason Matthews' Red Sparrow, all that that might have been helped by the Jennifer Lawrence film adaptation but it, there is definitely a sort of spy mm-hmm. fiction thing happening, like under the radar in the fiction charts at the moment. And Mick
5: Heron,
4: he's a favourite of yours, isn't he? Tom? Oh, I love Mick those four, I think it's five books now in the, that series are one of the best spy series that I've ever read. What I like about them is that the, the conceit is that the group of spies are the sort of people who have been exiled to this kind of house in the far corner of London because they've all screwed up in their MI6 careers. And, but they somehow are a sort of oddly matched group who are able to, you know, win the day for democracy and freedom, I guess. Bring them back. <laughs>
0: yeah. Thanks so much, Tom. Thank well, you, Kira. Thank Thanks. And we will see you again in January. Now it's time to talk to Sarah Perry. Sarah is the author of The Essex Serpent, which was the British Book Awards Book of the Year in 2017. I have Sarah's beautiful books in front of me. After me comes The Flood, The Essex Serpent, and her new book Malmoth, which came out last month. Sarah, what a pleasure to have you with us.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me. You've been on book tour with Malmoth. I was wondering, how's that going? Do you like being out and about? It's an extraordinary privilege, actually, and something that I have to um, keep reminding myself what a privilege it is so as not to grow used to it, because, of course, (laughs) there was a time when nobody wanted to hear what I thought about the Gothic or matters of faith and redemption or, you know, narrative. And now they ask me all the time, and I'm sure there'll come a time when no-one wants to hear anyone. <laughs> um, so to have two months of going um, all over the place has been really amazing, actually. It's quite exhausting, mm-hmm. um, sort of mentally and emotionally. I've got a habit of having people in the signing queue crying at me and then I burst into tears and then we have to have a hug and then we have to do it all over again. So, <laughs> But yeah, no, it's been great. Tell us about
0: Melmoth the Wanderer.
1: I quite often when I'm doing events say hands up who's read Melmoth the Wanderer just for the joy of seeing one very proud person fling up their (laughs) hand in a room full of sort of 250 people. So it was published in 1820 and it was written by an impoverished Irish vicar called Charles Robert McTwin who was as mad as a goose, he really was. He uh, wore very very fine clothes but was so poor that he couldn't afford to eat. Loved dancing but had a very deep and profound and quite angry social conscience so he would give sermons where he told his parishioners that it was their fault that the Irish people were starving in the streets and that they'd better bloody well do something about it And so he wrote to his friend Walter Scott and said, I'm going to write a novel that out-herods all the Herods. So he wanted to write the most violent and depraved and upsetting novel that had ever been published. And he succeeded. So it's a very long book comprising the story of Melmoth, who has sold his soul to the devil for an extra 150 years on Earth. But he soon realises this is a pretty bad bargain. So he travels all over the world trying to find people in a state of such desperate depravity and unhappiness that they'll change places with him. Um, it's incredibly violent it's incredibly bleak it's very funny uh, it's a very angry satire on established religion on um, kind of political corruption and I was completely transfixed by it when I read it as a PhD student in my early 30s and I remember getting halfway through thinking one day I will write the modern version of Melmoth and I will make my Melmoth a woman mm. but I didn't do anything about it for a very long time because it was too intimidating a task Tell us about Helen Franklin Helen Franklin I have a a slightly cold relationship with my characters, which always really disappoints people because they're plot devices Mm -hmm. and they're constructs. They are not people who I experience upon waking and they they wander into my subconscious and I love them and I must walk with them on the way. You know, Mm -hmm. I make them up. They are there for me to explore certain things. And there's two things that were imperative about Helen. Helen Franklin is a very boring, very (laughs) drab, ordinary English woman in early middle years with absolutely nothing to recommend her, really. And this was really important because I'd written a very compelling and attractive heroine for the Essex Mm -hmm, Serpent. And I thought, you can't fall back on the same old tropes, woman. You know, try something else, stretch yourself a bit. Mm -hmm. It's easy to make a character interesting if they're funny and daring, and infuriating, and maddening, and loving. But what about characters who are basically a bit drab and absent? Um, So it was a challenge. But also, the book is about how the world is not divided into monsters and good people. You know, you can't tell by picking them out of a crowd the people who will be instrumental in terrible things. They're just as boring as I am and as everybody else is. So Helen has done something terrible but you would never know by looking at her. And that was really important because, you know, in books the people that do wicked things often have a widow's peak and a cape. (laughs) Which is the opposite of that. And a sort of a,
0: you know, piercing stare. Yes, that's uh, right,
1: yeah. Uh, And then Helen uh, comes across, well, has the Hoffman document Just tell us a little bit about Joseph. This is the first document Helen Franklin reads that tells her about the legend of Melmoth, um, which she doesn't know. And in the you know the universe of my Melmoth, um, Melmoth is a woman who's cursed to wander the earth, witnessing humanity at its worst. Everyone knows this fairy tale, but Helen's not heard of it before. Joseph Hoffman has been keeping this manuscript because when he was a child, he saw Melmoth when he was involved in something really terrible. Mm. And now as a very, very old man writing in the National Library of the Czech Republic in Prague, he is writing his life account of what happened to him when he was a boy, where he saw Melmoth and why he believes that Melmoth has come back. So of course Helen first reads it and thinks, you know, this is the ramblings of an old man with a guilty conscience, Mm. but gradually her own guilt overwhelms her and she begins to think that Melmoth is real. And that there are rustlings in the corner. Yeah.
0: I really like books that contain books within them. And I was considering your three novels (laughs) as 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 a trio. After Me Comes the Flood starts with a diary... Uh, There are lots of letters in The Essex Serpent and then of course part of Melmoth is documents. Is that a conscious choice on your part? Do you also like those
1: books as a reader and then want to play around with it as a writer? There's a strange thing as a writer where you do a number of things unconsciously to begin with and then you reflect on your own practice and your own work and then people write about your work and you start to realise that that's what you're like and then you start (laughs) to do it consciously. So um, My favourite quote from the moment is by one of the towering literary titans of the 21st century Dolly Parton and she said find out what you're like and do it on purpose (laughs) which is amazing and so in After Me Comes the Flood I unconsciously was drawn to fragments I think partly because I have quite a low boredom threshold and if as a writer you include fragments then you get to play with voice you get Mm. to break off the narrative and insert some tension try another voice Mm. and that's really good fun and then subsequent to the Essex Serpent I I realised that people were talking about me as being sort of in the postmodern tradition which of course plays around with the idea of fragments documentation this is real but is it Mm -hmm. is that real which bit is fact and so by the time I got to Melmoth it was a mixture of glee and the the knowledge that I'd found out what I was like and I was now doing it on purpose.
0: Which is good advice I think for writing and life isn't it? Yeah absolutely. Good old Dolly Parton. Your books are very different in setting and tone do you feel they have Things in common, and are you aware that you have preoccupations as a writer?
1: I think I definitely see them as being one project, and actually one that has now concluded. So I see Melmoth as the last novel in a Gothic trilogy. Mm. All three books are linked by the Gothic sensation, playing with them in different ways, the psychological gothic, the the kind of noir Victorian Gothic, and then the monster supernatural Gothic in Melmoth. But there's also the fact that wherever I go, there I'll be and I'm completely preoccupied with matters of faith versus reason versus superstition versus madness with uh, what it means to try and fail and try again and fail again and still find some form of redemption, Mm. some form of grace with what it means to attempt to live a moral life, what that means, Mm -hmm. um, with kind of sexual politics and morality, friendship, intimacy, all of that stuff. So I do see this as being sort of a concluding book in a trilogy, but I know that whatever I do next, I'll carry forward all of these things that have preoccupied me since I was Mm -hmm. sort of a child, I suppose.
0: Do you learn about yourself by writing a book?
1: In my case, if I do, it's only with distance lending some sort of clarity to the view When I walked in and saw the three books on the table, I involuntarily (laughs) went, oh, I wrote three books. And I think it's because, you know, I went, I was away on tour by the time Melmoth was published and I haven't I've barely my feet have barely touched the ground so to actually see three volumes together that I wrote for the first time really is quite extraordinary and and now looking at them on the table I can see that god that is what I'm like isn't it okay (laughs) bit of a prig actually (laughs) um obsessed with the gothic and always banging on about goodness so um yeah I think I have found out what I'm like
0: did you write a bit of Melmoth in Prague? You certainly went to Prague to research
1: it. It depends what you call writing. Mm. Um, I have a very strange writing method, which I recommend to nobody, <laughs> um, which is that I get an idea for a book and then I don't write it in the sense of keyboard, mm-hmm. you know, finger to keyboard for a couple of years while it's going round and round my head so I was very lucky to live in Prague as the UNESCO City of Literature writer in residence for two months in um, January and February 2016 so before The Essex Serpent came out and I'd already conceived the idea of Melmoth the broad ideas of who she was that that it would be a contemporary novel with historical documents and I spent two months wandering around Prague in the snow going to lots of opera and feeding the jackdaws on Charles Bridge and sort of looking for her Um, and then when I came to write it those, those those months were absolutely crucial.
0: Um, you won the Nibby Book of the Year for the Essex Serpent and that prize um, is designed to honour the work of everyone involved in the book. I was wondering if you enjoyed, as I do, parts of the publishing process like are things like cover design.
1: I absolutely see myself as being a team member, which mm-hmm. sounds really lame and kind of girl scoutish, but the process of actually writing the book for me is utterly solitary. It's not shared with anybody until I've typed the end. Mm-hmm. Not that I actually type the end, but you know, <laughs> and then i and then I go to my agent, she sees it, so I'm totally alone spiritually and mentally and and often kind of physically as well while I'm writing it and then I enter into the world of the cover design, the typesetting. And I'm very lucky to have been with Serpent's Tale for three books. So I know the designer. I know he's an an acknowledged genius. I know Ruthie, who will will go over the copy with me and Mm. um, we'll talk about semicolons. And so the Nibby was just, they won it with me. I think there's a lot of romance, slightly spurious romance around books, you know. Um, The idea that the author is visited with this mysterious gift and somehow probably by magic a volume <laughs> appears but we mustn't discuss anything so vulgar as the cover price mm-hmm. or the design um but it's not like that um there's loads of people with extraordinary expertise working away behind the scenes so it was amazing to have it acknowledged like that
0: the observer said that melmoth manages that rare feat of being hugely readable and profoundly important do you Think about being readable. Is readability something you consider?
1: Yeah, I cannot imagine how one goes about writing a book that you're not particularly bothered about people reading <laughs> I mean I would not spend three years cooking a meal that no one would want to eat and I'm certainly not going to spend three years writing a book that nobody would want to read and I find something very interesting about what's happened in the late 20th and early 21st century is if readability is ignoble mm-hmm. actually and uh, something that should come way way down the list you know that self-expression should come first or something well I, you know if I want to express myself I'll go and Play the piano badly, but this is a craft. I'm a crafts person and I want to make a piece of work that functions well. And I do think a great deal about the author writer's experience of pleasure and distress actually as someone who's been writing in the gothic tradition Mm. i want people to be really upset by melmoth and the more people (laughs) tell me that they can't finish reading it the more i feel job slightly done (laughs) just try and get to the end so yeah i think about that a great deal and i think also of that amazing anecdote about how um, obviously dickens published his novels in serial form and when he was publishing the old curiosity shop and people wanted to know if you know about little nell what would happen to little nell the There's an urban legend, which I believe is is documented and true, that as the ship came in from America into Liverpool docks, people were leaning over the balustrade at the side while people were selling them the next instalment of the old curiosity Mm -hmm. shop because they were desperate to find out what happened. Mm -hmm. Somewhere along the line, we've kind of conceived this mad idea that one either writes kind of interesting, challenging, worthwhile books Mm -hmm. or or they're readable. And, uh, you know, I've always been greedy and Mm -hmm. I intend to try both with my writing. (laughs) Can I ask you what's next for you writing wise? To my great disgust, um I seem to be writing a love story. Mm. I'm appalled. Um (laughs) I don't read romance, I don't really believe in it, I don't like it, and yet here we are. Um so I think possibly it's a moving on from the gothic in some ways. But how far I can escape the gothic I'm not sure. Mm. Suspect it'll follow me around like little jackdaw. What do you
0: like best about writing life?
1: My favourite place in the whole world is my desk. I would choose to be working alone at my desk above a party with everyone I love, having a marvellous time. I just want to work Mm -hmm. and that's by far the greatest pleasure for me. Just work and as much of it as possible until I die. Um, And then second to that, seeing readers and hearing them talk to me about the book, you know, when I was on tour, I met this couple of wonderful people for whom the Essex Serpent had been crucial in a, in a really difficult time in their lives. After I wrote about pain and illness, mm-hmm. I have a large number of people who speak to me about how they've never been able to articulate the effect of severe pain or mm-hmm. long term pain. And my essay was something that enabled them to show their family what they've been through. And the idea that Sitting at my desk in Norwich, I can affect people by making marks on a piece of paper seems to me astonishing. I can't believe how lucky I am.
0: Sarah Perry, thank you so much for letting your feet rest on the ground with us for this period of time. It's been highly enjoyable. Thank you. I'm now going to hand you over to Nigel to quiz The
5: Book Doctors. Thanks, Cathy. The Book docs is a really simple idea. Just think of it as um, just like Gardner's Question Time, but without the artichokes. So f- from up and down the country, we've asked readers, some heavy, some occasional, to tell us what they last read, the kind of books they like, and what they're looking for. Then we're going to find out what the Book Doctors recommend. These two are good. They're both past national and regional winners of the British Book Awards Indie Bookshop of the Year. They really know their stuff. So I'm going to start like the umpire on Gladiator, if anyone remembers Gladiator, Mari, are you ready? I'm ready. Uh, Nick, are you ready? I am ready. OK, right off. First off, we're going to head north of the border. So our first reader is Beth, Beth's 18. She's from Edinburgh, but she's studying law French in Glasgow. The last book she read was The Stepford Wives, and funny enough, I only think of that as a film. And what she tends to like, uh, mystery novels, occasionally a bit of Agatha Christie, she says. Comedy, she just got into comedy with Delete This at Your Peril. She's looking maybe for something more at the kind of the drama kind of book. Mari.
6: Well, I'm standing here and I'm looking at all my Christmas mysteries because we we love them at this time of year But for exactly that reason. that You want some entertainment, but you're a bit tired and there's nothing like a good murder. (laughs) Um, And one of the joys of this time of year is, of course, everybody digs out some wonderful either retro ones from the British Library collection like the Christmas card crime... There's a couple of lovely compilations with some big authors in it. There's one called The Very Murderous Christmas and the other one's called Murder on Christmas Eve. Um, I also like them because, of course, you aren't generally allowed to kill your relatives and usually by then you would like to. (laughs) Um, So um, that's one of my first thoughts because also the nice thing about a crime novel is if you are busy and your head's busy, it is a book you can pick up and put down and I mean that not with any disrespect. There are other books you want to envelop yourself in and stay with. That's probably where I would send her initially. It's a bit of entertainment. Nick, what were your thoughts?
7: So I had two thoughts. The first one is uh, because I I think we had the best, like, sort of Agatha Christie-style mystery, but also she sort of sounded like open to something a little bit different, some sort of twist on it. So the book that's kind of been doing so, so well just recently that fitted that, I thought, was The Seven Lives of Evelyn Hardcastle. Oh, yeah. good um, Good call. Yeah, because I, I just think that's, you know, it, it's got that, it's good, you know, for those who don't know about it, it essentially it's it set at a glamorous ball and, and the main uh, character, if you like, Evelyn, is murdered. But then you sort of throw in a twist of Groundhog Day. And she will be murdered again day after day after day until the guest, Aidan, who we sort of follow, uh, can solve the mystery as he repeatedly sees the same crime happen from these different perspectives. Uh, and any other, this is a series that we often talk about with people who like Agatha Christie, uh, just because it's a sort of very light, good-to-read-at-Christmas kind of homage to the country house murder, this series of books that's been going well, oh, good for years now, by Alan Bradley, and the first one was called The Sweetness at the Bottom of the Pie, which uh, where he's got an 11-year-old uh, detective who's so precocious you want to clip around the ear, and that's kind of the fun of it, and she's called Flavia Deluche. But, yeah, those are great fun.
5: Well, I hope that's worked for Beth. Those sound fantastic. I hadn't heard of Alan Bradley, so that's a great pick from you. Let's go down the age scales now. So next up, we got Emmy. Emmy lives in Hertfordshire. She's in year five in primary school. Now, I reckon this must be a kind of a classic one that you probably hear quite a lot. The last book she read was Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, and she's looking for a book similar to the Harry Potters in, in the sense that there's a dramatic twist. So what are we going to give Emmy?
6: I think there's some wonderful collections out there for her. Um, I mean, staying on the magical theme, you've got the wonderful House of Secrets series by Chris Cresompe, Columbus and Ned Fizzini which different kind of magic but they have a tremendous piece on them. I mean I had one nine year old tell me recently she didn't think there was a more exciting book ever written. Oh, which, brilliant. you know, is what you live for. And again, slightly over one, the spell chasers set by Larry Don is just again, they pick them up and they're just enraptured by them. The first one's called The Beginner's Guide to Curses. And again, they've got great pace and action in them. And I suspect that's one of the things she might have liked about Harry, is not just the magic, it's the pace on it.
5: Oh Nick, I think you're going to struggle to trump those suggestions, aren't you?
7: Yeah, probably, but, I've got, <laughs> yeah, but they're they are very fine ones. Actually, I'm going to... I've sort of hastily wrote down the first one, because I confess <laughs> I'm not even sure whether we stock that, so I'm going to have to get on to that. Yeah, no, so I've got a nine-year-old uh, daughter uh, who's, in, who's in your fight, and she, she uh, got sucked completely into the world of Harry Potter. And actually... Having watched her experience of it, what I tend to do is try not to find anything that's too close uh, as the sort of antidote to Harry Potter because I just found that I find that there are so many sort of that just don't quite live up to the way children seem to engage with those books. So the, the thing that my daughter embarks on after was completely different, full of mystery, but completely different, was the Ruby Redford series by Lauren Child. But something that's a bit closer in sort of darkness, twists, and turns is A Place Called Perfect by Helena Duggan which is set in a sort of slightly dystopian town, a town that the main character, Violet, is, is uh, forced to move to, and she can't really understand why. And everyone has appalling eyesight, and everyone loves to drink tea. And there's this kid called Boy that only she can see. And there are all these sort of weird little oddities, and you just it, it, genuinely, as a grown-up reading it with her, uh, I found it very difficult to tell which direction a lot of these twists and turns were going to. It had a surprising amount of darkness in it, which, at least that characteristic, I think is is kind of yeah matches up to J.K. Rowling's uh, uh, writing. That sounds quite old for a nine-year-old. Well, no, it, yeah, I, I in a way so the writing isn't. Uh, yeah. I think you could. I wouldn't go. We don't go much younger though. I mean, a confident sort of eight-year-old. It's got a lot of tension in it. There's a few, you know. Few relatives you know, go missing. The but, Harry Potter um,
0: books are full of death.
7: Yeah, so. they are. And there's plenty of nine-year-olds out there who've read all the Harry Potter books. And, uh, yeah. and by the end of it, they're getting pretty dark. Yeah. I mean,
6: the other set that, that chimes that way is actually the Murder, Most like mysteries, oh, yeah. which are fabulous for that age group. And I think the first one actually starts with suicide, but never mind. Yeah. Um, it, they have a cross between Agatha Christie and Enid Blyton, murder in a boarding school. So and the wh- little girls, Robin Stevenson, an amazing series because, again, they just seem to get gripped by them and off they go.
0: Yes and I must say this 45-year-old woman really enjoys those. <laughs> <laughs> well that's
6: good to know. Yeah.
0: I've written down a place called perfect. I think the holy I grail don't know for me that one either, no. The holy grail for me is a book that my son will enjoy and I will really genuinely enjoy as well and that's yeah. what that sounds like that might be doing for us. Yeah
7: and and it is I tell you another thing it is brilliant because it has it genuinely Violet and and Boy are a, are a genuine sort of boy girl double act that you know you can it doesn't have a fixed gender appeal either way.
5: Well that's brilliant. Now, and we got one final one. You'll have to bear with me on this one. This is Maureen from Shropshire, who's also my mum. Hello, so hello, you bet, yeah, you better get this one right. So she last read Claire Tomalin's Life of My Own, and she loved Gilead, Marilyn Robinson, which I bought her last Christmas. So one each for my mum.
6: I've got a thinking hat on. I'm going to it. ask him first. I'm just going round my head going, OK, I'm, going to, I'm looking at my table here because I've got the advantage of walking round my shop just now. I'm going to say Patrick Gale's Take Nothing with you. I love Patrick Gale. I challenge anybody not to enjoy one of his books. Oh, yeah. you haven't
5: met my mum. She'll take the well, challenge. There you go.
6: Well, if she meets Patrick, she'll be in love. So there you go.
7: <laughs> I would say, well, the novelist that I always make sure people have read if they enjoy Marilyn Robinson is Kent Harouf. Yes. Uh, not not a new writer of course but wrote maybe six novels set in a fictional town called Holt, Colorado and just like Marilyn Robinson it's all about the characters it's about community it's, it's about faith with a small f as well you know which is also uh, Robinson has that as a theme in her writing and I would probably start with Plain Song.
5: Plain Song.
6: Right. And so. she might enjoy Richard Russell if she can find him. He's mm. not easy to find in this country but he's another one who writes about small town real life American amazing book
5: Thanks a lot, Nick. Thanks, oh, thank Mari. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for Bye. asking us. Bye. Bye. That was Nick Bottomley from Mr B's in Bath, Fabulous Shop, and Mari Moser from the Edinburgh Bookshop. They, they are wonderful, wonderful indie bookshops, and they're also very busy because you could hear the crowds in the background.
0: That's it for now. This has been a joy. Please tweet at The Bookseller or come to our Facebook page and tell us what you'd like us to cover in future podcasts. Or just email us on podcast at com. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and listen to us on the website at thebookseller.com, where you can also find out about all the books we've mentioned. Thanks to Tom Tivnan and Kira O'Brien, and thanks very much to Nigel, and thank you to the magnificent Sarah Perry. What a treat oh, it was to hear from Sarah. And as promised, we're going to play you out with Adam Kay reading from This Is Going to Hurt to end the very first edition of the bookseller podcast. This has been a heavy entertainment production. I'm Cathy Rensenbrink. Join us in January for something very special.
3: Monday, 25th of December 2006. I don't particularly mind working on Christmas Day. There are snacks everywhere, people on the whole are in a good mood, and there are very few worried well, i.e. people who come into hospital with absolutely nothing wrong with them. Generally, nobody rocks up as a patient on Christmas Day unless they're genuinely sick, genuinely in labour or genuinely hate their family, in which case we've at least got some common ground. I'm not convinced H sees it this way as we exchange gifts at breakneck speed at 7am. Tradition at St Agatha's dictates that the on-call consultant turns up and does a ward round on Christmas Day, which eases the workload for the juniors. The consultant will also bring a bag of presents for patients, toiletries, panettone, that sort of thing, because, well, it's pretty rotten being a hospital inpatient over Christmas, and the little things do make a difference. Best of all, tradition has it that this consultant will be dressed as Santa Claus as they do their round. The nursing staff's disappointment is palpable when today's consultant, Mr Hopkirk, turns up around 10am wearing chinos and a jumper. Before the cries of Grinch and Ebenezer get too deafening, he explains that the last time he was on call on Christmas Day, he chucked on the beard and outfit for the ward round and was halfway through when an elderly patient suddenly went into cardiac arrest, so he dashed over and started CPR while a nurse went to fetch the trolley. Unusually, the CPR was successful and the patient gasped back to life to the sight of a six-foot Santa lip-locked with her, his arms on her chest. I can still hear her scream, he said. Go on, says one of the nurses, like a child failing to hide their distress that their Christmas present is a calligraphy set, not a kitten. Maybe just the hat.